podcast listeners. It's takeover time, and this is our second episode in the special series. I'm Trisha Johnson. This week, we're on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, where leaders from across the globe are gathered. The festival is a program of the Aspen Institute that brings together the most inspired and innovative thinkers, artists, politicians, business leaders, scientists, and others. The mission is to dive deep into a world of ideas, thought, and discussion and spark positive change. Already, we've heard illuminating thoughts and discussion. So that you can take part, I'm giving up the mic this week. A series of hosts, who are also speakers at the festival, will take over and interview Ideas Festival presenters across many disciplines. Maria Inahosa is president of Futuro Media Group. It explores the diverse American experience through multimedia journalism. She also hosts NPR's Latino USA. In this episode, Inahosa will interview other presenters at the festival. Here are her conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Maria Inojosa and I'm the takeover host for the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. And we are actually at the Aspen Ideas Festival in the middle of Aspen. And I'm here with the Jose Antonio Vargas. <laughs> um, I say that because he's such an amazing human being and an American, um, an American icon in terms of his journalism and his, and his activism. Um, you know him because he is Sometimes he likes to say, tongue-in-cheek, the most famous undocumented person in the United States. He was on the cover of Time magazine, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter from the Washington Post, um, and now running um, two projects, Define American and Emerging US, EmergingUs.com. Yes. And it's your first time here in Aspen, too, right? Yes. So the first time in the city? The first time in the city, I thought it was close to Denver. It's not. (laughs) It's not. And when I got here, I was like, "Is this out of shape I am that like I'm like running out of breath?" Oh, you didn't. You weren't no, prepared. No, I didn't, didn't know. tell you that it's eight thousand feet. Eight thousand feet above. So I was like, I knew that I was out of shape. I didn't realize I was this out of shape. So that took a little getting used to, but I'm fine now. <laughs> so um, it's your first time at the Aspen Ideas Festival, like my first time. Yes. Um, so kind of what's going on? Well, I'm happy that we are adding much needed diversity to this space. I think that's really important. I think it's really important that, you know, there are as many people from different backgrounds here. Um, I have to say, though, I don't know if you feel this way. It is, it's been incredible to see that such a space can exist, right? That it is about ideas. It's not about Republican, Democrat. It's not about, it's about ideas. And I think more than ever, at a time in which American identity is kind of at stake, I think having a place where we can talk about ideas is so necessary. And I'm glad that it's diverse and that it needs to be more diverse. Yeah, I feel the same way. I kind of feel like, you know, this is like one of the great things that happens in an American, in the American democracy is to create a space where we're exchanging, where it is bipartisan. Um, I, I do, I mean, I know that what's, what's great about the Aspen Ideas Festival is that the ideas actually get out there, right? Yeah. That there's a way of, of getting these ideas out there. On the other hand, um, there is something really strange, I think, about being in a place that is so uniquely beautiful and hard to get to, um, wealthy, yeah. very wealthy. Um, so I feel like both things are happening at the same time. On the one hand, you have like this deep engagement. And on the other hand, I'm like, wow, we really need to make sure that the rest of the country is hearing all about this. There's a kind of, there's an exclusivity to it. And I'm trying to figure out if that's by design, right? Like it's invitation only. I don't know how much it costs to come here. Um, but it's such a necessary thing to have that 
I wonder, which is why I guess having a podcast like this is important so people can download it and listen to it, right? Like, how do we democratize something like this that is so essential into how democracy works, right? Like, I was on a panel a couple of days ago and I said, you know, to me, one of the issues that we really have to discuss is how do we, how do we decenter white people in conversations about race and privilege, right? And what was like, the reaction when you said that, decenter white people? Meaning, you know, I actually think it would do a lot of service, not only to people of color, but to white people to realize that they're not the mainstream, that they're not the default, that they're not the norm, that we all are. And unless white people can look around and say, wait a second, where's everybody else? We can't get anywhere, right? I don't know what the reaction was because I was all up on the stage. But to me, that's an important thing to really unpack and to really talk about. I mean, we, we, I mean, we talk a lot about privilege, but the question about privilege is what are you doing to risk it? You know, I risked mine five years ago, and I'm still paying the price for that. I think all of us can afford to risk something, you know. Why is it so, you and I are both journalists of color, we're both immigrant journalists born outside of this country. Um, you and I have both done a lot of, you know, regular general assignment, mainstream reporting and political and investigative. But it's interesting that both you and I have ended up also spending time in our careers actually wanting to do journalism about white people and wanting to do journalism about um, demographics and change and power. Why do you think that that this is a space that like people like you and I actually want to be in? What is it? What does it do for you as a journalist, and what do you think it does for the for the country? Well, I man, I think because I think you and I are all, are attracted to what numbers tell us about where we're going, right? And the numbers are pretty clear about this, about the fact that this country is no longer going to be white, and what are the cultural, political, and economic implications of that? And I would argue that actually the space we're trying to cover and unpack is in some ways fertile ground. Right. And it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a big Toni Morrison fan. I, I probably, you know, the bluest eye I read when I was in eighth grade. I was lucky enough that Mr. Zayner assigned the bluest eye in eighth grade. And what Toni Morrison has done in literature in terms of writing about black people without the white gaze is something that we have not even begun to achieve in journalism. So much of what happens, I think, is people of color being written about or being talked about from the prism and from the lens of white people. And I think in some ways what we bring into the conversation as people of color, as a woman of color, right, as a, as a gay and documented person, looking at it and saying, this is what this construction is, let's unpack it, and now let's figure out why it is the way that it is. I mean, whiteness in this country is fluid, right? There was a time when the Irish weren't white, when the Germans, so how did that happen? And I think, frankly, I, I hope that, you know, as the Aspen Ideas Festival continue to grow and evolve, that that is something that becomes even more a part of their agenda and what they try to unpack. Um, I certainly will be talking about that more and more. Um, in the documentary that you did about whiteness, um, what was the most interesting response that you got that kind of left you with your draw open? Both, maybe it was a positive or a negative one. Because uh, what we ended up doing, as you saw in the film, that MTV ended up producing with Define American, um, I was shocked at how many young white people didn't know what their own immigration backgrounds were. That, you know, like, I'm white, I'm American, like, what else, right? And then I started thinking, oh man, like, this is why we haven't changed the culture in which people think of immigration in this country. Because people think of it as a Latino thing. They don't even think of it as an Asian thing. It has nothing nothing to to do do with with them. Yes. And so I think for us at Define American, one of our chief goals is how do we change the culture in which people talk about immigration and immigrants and 
one way to do that is to make white people kind of wake up to their own background. And when people say, my grandparents did it the right way, I'm sorry, what was the right way? When the Irish came here after the potato famine, they didn't show any papers, they just showed up, right? I mean, the first person in line when Ellis Island opened was a young Irish girl named Annie Moore who was unaccompanied, got on a boat. Right? When we, when we think about that, don't we think of the Central American refugees that are now fighting for their lives in this country? How do we connect these dots? Um, so that's why we did that. But I was really shocked by that. I just thought that I would argue, and this is your journalism, you know, that, by the way, I have to say, you know, when you're talking about Maria Hinojosa, you're talking about one of the pioneers of journalism, right? But what, what, what we're trying to do is something that's never really been done, which is to tell a more inclusive story of this country. I would argue that we have not told the real story of America. We have not. In the same way that when we talk about, you know, this country being founded and built by immigrants, what does that say to black people who were brought here by slavery and to Native Americans who were here before us? But that's a myth, right? All America built by immigrants. I think it's kind of offensive to black people and Native Americans, right? So how do we unlearn that? How do we unlearn that whiteness is a construction with benefits, right? So I think our journalism collectively and we need more and my question is how can the Aspen you know Institute support that like what can what can this institution do to support that kind of work um, right. no, I agree with you I think that it's um, I think what you and I appreciate um, and I remember I think you said that I was the first person who called you an American journalist <laughs> you were. Um, and I and I take that I take ownership of that title very strongly because I believe that in a lot of the, the work that we're tr- doing is we're actually setting the stage for the future <laughs> so that it actually gets better and that there is, more, there is more understanding and there is less fear. Because I think when you talk about the prism uh, covering people of color or immigration or difference from the prism of whiteness, it also means that there is an element of fear. <laughs> Things are going to change. Oh my God, I'm scared about that. Yeah. As opposed to oh my God, things are changing. What? How cool? What's going to happen? And things are changing for white people too, right? For the first time, white Americans are actually an emerging racial minority. And how does that feel like? How does that look like? What does it mean to be othered, right? I mean, this is where Baldwin, James Baldwin was so prophetic, right? He was saying that what's going to happen when the other becomes all of us? We are there now, right? And I think we, that's why, the. As a journalist, as an American journalist, as Maria Nahosa calls me, I, uh, I cannot think of a more important and essential time to be a journalist. I cannot, and I cannot think of a more exciting time to be doing what we do. But now the question is, what kind of support do we get? What kind of institutions must we build? I mean, you've started it with the Vittorio Media Group, right? I'm starting it with the Merging Us, but we need new institutions to do this because the old ones are just not moving fast enough. So, Jose, before we wrap up, um, I, I do want to ask you kind of what's going on for you um, post-Orlando. post, post Orlando. Um, You know, that term intersectionality is one that we've been talking about a lot on the work that we do. Um, there was a whole conversation about um, how the story was covered at first, you know, it, things that were completely glazed over. Yeah. Um, I'm particularly fascinated with some of the reporting that's been coming out of Maria Elena Salinas from Univision. Yes. About the fact that Omar Mateen uh-huh. had Puerto Rican, a Puerto Rican lover, at least one, mm-hmm. and that this was actually a crime of passion. But isn't it fascinating, though, how the media, for the most part, has framed this as a terrorism issue, 
as a Muslim, even that, even though, like, you know, the again, the otherness of that. And, I mean, we forget we still live in a largely homophobic society, right? I mean, same-sex marriage didn't solve everything, I mean, as, as we know now. Um, so this is where I think, again, digging deeper and prism is so important, right? I'm sure Maria Elena is looking at that. I just had a couple of Twitter messages with her. I'm like, oh, God, please go deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Uh, actually, the moment it happened that night because I was I was in California so you know we were a little bit I found out about it like around 11 p.m. California time I was like oh man I hope it's not a closeted guy <laughs> my first instinct was it's probably a closeted guy we can't we hate in ourselves something we can't face that's the first thing I always think about right and I have to say it's been hard you know, between Orlando and the Supreme Court decision on immigration which means that five million people including me are you know the hardest conversation so far for me has been with my grandmother. <laughs> because, because I there was all this hope, right, Jose? I mean, the whole idea now was that this would mean that you would be able to finally go visit my mom, your mom. And uh, we didn't. I don't think we prepared ourselves for a bad decision. I think we were. Everybody was a little too optimistic. So when it happened, I had to talk to my grandmother about it. And I know my grandmother is like, "We're gonna go to the Philippines by Christmas." <laughs> And so I had to explain to her we're not. And my grandmother said, maybe it's time to just leave. <laughs> For the first time, she said to me, maybe it's time. If they don't want you here, maybe you should just leave. Because my mom, you know, your mom's waiting. She's been waiting. We should go see her. It was so interesting because I was on Megyn Kelly's show just two hours before. I can handle Fox News. That I can do. But talking to my grandmother about this and trying to explain to her and apologizing that I've been asking her to wait and wait. You know, I put that woman through hell when I got arrested in Texas. I mean, I thought she was going to have a heart attack. So uh, that's been the hardest part. And uh, having to explain to my family that, you know, I have to stay. You know, I can't just leave. I can't do that. Um, so that's probably been the hardest part. I guess just finally, Jose, you know, people think about Supreme Court decisions and they're like, oh, the Supreme Court made this decision so far away. Um, and yet right now you are living through a Supreme Court decision um, and the most violent crime in our history. Um, and both of them are touching you very deeply and very personally. And they are both distinctly American dynamics, distinctly American crime and a distinctly American decision by the Supreme Court. Ugh. See, this why I don't like to think about it like that because it's too hard. It's too actually the thing that when I started thinking about when, when Orlando happened was my own anti-gayness. I hated gay clubs growing up. I hated them. I hated that we needed to go to them. I hated that we had to have a month to be proud. I hated that. I hated what Gay Pride Month represented. The fact that people have to be like in floats, half naked and waving flags. I hated that. And that was happening right there. And it's in a gay bar on Latin night, right? And the guy who did it is of Omar. I mean, really? I mean, Tony Kushner could not write this any better. <laughs> the playwright, right? So dealing with that and then dealing with the Supreme Court decision, which in some ways is arguably the most consequential Supreme Court decision in the generation on immigration. Has, has nine words in one sentence meant so much to so many people, right? It was a nine-word, one-sentence decision. Um, but, again, I cannot be a pessimist because I am alive. So I have to be grateful that even in an exclusive place like this, I'm invited. 
that I'm allowed to have a voice and I just have to make sure that I'm speaking as loudly and as uncompromisingly and as politely as possible. There is that, right, Jose? Gratefulness, right? Yes, At every moment. I don't, I don't think you and I could continue doing our work were it not for... I think you find purpose when you find gratitude. I have to keep telling myself that every day. I find purpose when I find gratitude and I have to be grateful. Jose Antonio Vargas, thank you so much for joining me at the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast here in Aspen. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you, Maria. I'm Maria Hinojosa, the Takeover host, and until next time, ciao. I'm Brian Bridges, Vice President for Research and Member Engagement at UNCF. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, I am here, I believe, largely because of the work I do with the member colleges that comprise the UNCF network. And uh, I'm here as an Arthur Vining Davis Fellow and uh, just soaking it all in. The session I just came out of is a session that that, uh, talks about the future of work and the careers of the future. And it's something that I think far too many or far too few Uh, people are aware of how artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics of the future will transform the world of work and also the way we just live our lives and uh, and it's something I think everybody needs to hear on a regular basis because they need to be mindful of what's coming down the road. When he mentioned that uh, you know 65 percent of the jobs in the future for today's kids 65 percent of the jobs that will be available when they're adults in 20 plus years, aren't even created yet. And as someone with a six-year-old and a a two-year-old, it just uh, resonated with me because what do I need to do to help prepare my daughters to be adaptable and ready for the dynamic changing environment for the world of work of the future? Hey everyone, my name is Maria Hinojosa and I am the takeover host of the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. And we are here at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen and I am joined by Melvin Marr. You know him because you've watched Fresh Off the Boat, one of the best TV shows out there. Um, He's also executive produced many movies and has got so much stuff in development in Hollywood right now. Um, Melvin, I told you, you were like, things are great. And I said, yeah, you're going to be having a good run for the next 20 years. Oh, you're mouth to God's ears, Maria. You're mouth to God's ears. But I mean, you really, uh, did you envision this when you were starting out as an intern? You know, you were just trying to see if there was going to be a place for you in the industry. And now you actually are a leading voice in the industry in terms of portraying the America that we really are. Uh, That's very kind. Um, Did I envision it as an intern? No. I just... uh, I think the immediate thought was, how do I, A, not fail because my parents were re- already disappointed that I was not pursuing a you know, career in medicine. <laughs> so at all costs, I couldn't fail. And uh, you know, you just try to find, you just keep learning. Just got to find your way to, your way in, you know? And the attitude was always just like, be there in any way possible. Somewhere along the lines, though, you really understood that you wanted to kind of own your perspective. Um, And I don't know how you identified yourself, but you definitely were like, okay, I'm not going to try to be like everybody else. So what happened there? There was a a moment, and I think the defining moment was when um, I took sort of the leap to pitch, like, putting an Asian family on TV. You know, I had always harbored 
some desire to do something like that. And I, I harbor a desire to put diversity on television and in movies. And, you know, I think the game is just looking for your opportunity, you know. And we had, you know, my partner and I had a, my partner Jake Kasdan and I had a pretty good run in terms of television. And it was one of those years where we felt like we had fulfilled, you know, our obligations to our production deal. And, you know, they, they asked, do you want to do anything else? And I said, are you serious about that, really? Do, you, do I want to do anything else? And, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And it was a very sort of abstract thing of, like, I'd love to see Asians on television. And when I said Asians at the time, I didn't have an idea. I didn't have... A, a script or even a story. It was just, I want to do that. And Asians was also really broad. It could have been Indian Americans. It could have been, uh, you know, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans. And I was very open to it. At one point, I even thought, like, if Asians doesn't work, maybe Latinos on TV. Like, it's just some form of diversity. And um, I sort of mustered up the courage to go and you know, I, I prepared myself with like numbers. I had like a Nielsen report that, um, you know, sort of talked about the growing emerging market of Asian Americans uh, in this country. And I um, was prepared with figures to go and argue if need be. But I had really great bosses. Dana Walden at Fox, uh, Johnny Davis, Gary Newman, they all were very supportive. I just, I, I gave them that idea and they said, yeah, let's do it, absolutely. Now, interestingly, you actually came at it through a market-based um, yes. and you, that was, that was going to be your argument. My argument was that because I think you have to sort of prove, after all, it's a business, especially network television. And you have to figure out a way to at least paint the portrait of the possibility of it working in the marketplace. You know? And so what was the, what, what, just give us a couple of those numbers, basically. Basically, uh, my big one was just sort of $100,000 income families are 30% higher in Asian American markets than any other demographic. And I was like, yes, $100,000, 30% higher. Those were very three buzz numbers, two buzz numbers. You know, 100000 and 30% higher. <laughs> so, so basically in terms of selling ads, because yeah. that means that you're going to have higher an affluent audience. Ads, yeah, more affluent audience, expensive car ads, which they like, uh, you know, uh, higher end products, blah, 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 you know. Okay, now that was the, the market mm -hmm. argument. Once you realized the story that you wanted to tell, mm -hmm. what's the creative argument for why this, you know, a show like Fresh Off the Boat should be on television? Well, it was the, you know, I had a, a very much sort of personal and emotional argument for it. And it was just a matter of finding what the creative way in was. You know, I, I, I thought, well, you know, you, if you've been in Hollywood long enough, you're like, well, I still have to cater to the Caucasian audience. How do we do that, you know? And is it coming up with a story where there was a Caucasian character in it? You know, um, maybe it's an interracial marriage. Maybe it's, a, you know, a white guy who marries an Asian girl or vice versa. Or, and then, you know, it was just something that sort of hit me, in, again, in sort of a very abstract way. I was just like... You know, I grew up watching shows like Family Ties and Growing Pains and Different Strokes, and I was one of those kids who, you know, wasn't particularly athletic, and, you know, I didn't have very many after-school activities except for going home and watching TV, you know, and I, uh, I love those shows. So I thought, that's the way to do it. You know, it's an Asian-American family. You put them in a very, you know, fish-out-of-water situation, and then um, a friend of mine, you know, turned me on to Eddie Wong's memoir, and 
you know, he, he I mean, I, I love him and he's so brave for putting that in a book. You know, he's inspired so many people with that thing. And us and the show included. Yeah. So give us a great number now that you've been on the air. Um, you've been renewed, but what's like the happiest number that you can share with us about the success of a show like Fresh Off the Boat? The, the happiest number? Uh, the, the, the happiest number last season was 24 episodes, which was the typical order was 22, and they added two at the end. And, um, you know, to go from a mid-season, or to go from just like what some of my colleagues who will remain nameless when I first sold the idea, they called it uh, the flyer. You know, like you just try it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, to go from a flyer to a mid-season show to a fall debut last season with two added episodes is kind of amazing. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been really great. And the audience has been so wonderful to us and, you know, sticking with it and, you know, uh, and growing. So what is the importance? I mean, you were talking about the shows that you watched when you would come home from school. Um, I was doing the same thing, watching all kinds of different shows that I yeah, think they yeah, were, yeah. some of them were even in black and white. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but what is the importance um, for you as a consumer and now as a producer of representing that, that trueness of who we are as Americans in popular culture, in television, in film? I mean, I, I feel like that's sort of... It's, it goes hand in hand, you know, if you are an American and if you are representing, your, representing yourself as an American, it needs to be on the biggest medium on, you know, in the country or on the planet. And that still is television and film, you know, and uh, it's a part of just sort of owning it, you know, and some of the happiest moments I have in this whole process the last two years is when, you know, um, some people my age sort of just are blown away by it, which is less, oh my God, I never thought I'd see like an Asian American face uh, on TV in sort of a protagonist capacity in a three-dimensional, very layered character. And then, you know, there are the young kids who just sort of see it, think it's really cool, but then I think about their perspective, which is it'll just be that for them. They'll never know the time where there wasn't that. And that's great. You know, like my daughter's three. She'll never, it'll just always be Asian people are on TV. It's the way it is. And I guess just finally, when you think about the, de the demographics of our country, mm -hmm. um, not so much now as a market, but, you know, Anglo-America becoming a numerical minority. Mm -hmm. It's a term that I actually don't use. I don't like to use mm -hmm. the term minority to refer to any mm -hmm. group. Um, Latinos and Asians, mm -hmm. the fastest growing demographic groups, mm -hmm. Asians outpacing Latinos actually in terms of their growth. Um, so mm -hmm. what's the what's the big in, picture? Yeah. Yeah. Latinos are bigger in numbers though, isn't it? Bigger in numbers, yeah. but yeah. you're growing faster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are you thinking about in terms of this new America where we have a numerical minority that happens to be white and where, as Jose Antonio yeah. Vargas just said, white America is actually decentered mm -hmm. from the conversation. It's kind of, to me, it's it's wonderful. It's it's what America is. You know, I, I, I shared in one of the panels where I just recently, it all sort of came together that my family, you know, um, the family history is illegal immigration. We're all paper sons. And I have relatives and ancestors that worked on the railroad that worked to build this country you know so there's a 
it's it's poetic and beautiful in a way where I just you know it, it's not America shouldn't be about like you know white black Asian it, it's you're American and we all have a part of it you know preach <laughs> and you do because you preach Thanks. on television and in films um, Melvin thank you so much and um, we are so happy for all of your successes and I don't know I see you as a studio chief president uh, your mouth the guy's ears thank you it's very nice Melvin Moore producer and executive producer fresh off the vote and of many many other projects um, thank you so much for being part of the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast I'm Maria Hinojosa and I'll see you next time ciao Uh, I'm Dr. Maylie Thompson. I grew up in Texas, but I live in Seattle now. Well, I've been trying to diversify what I go to. So this morning it was space. Today it was future technology. There's so much cool stuff happening. Have you heard of CRISPR? I had never heard of CRISPR. It's really amazing and scary. And um, the implications are amazing. And I'll go to a talk about gender and then a talk about... I mean, it's nonstop. There's so there's so many things, but um, it just leads to really great conversations at the end of the day, and I really love it. And being a doctor, you know, have of English. You, uh, yeah, I'm a professor. So, you know, is there something you've learned here that you might, or hoping to learn that you might take back to the classroom? Well, you know, last year there was a lot of talk about the death of the humanities, and this year it seems a little bit more positive. Um, we were just encouraged to. Uh, emphasize humanities with uh, young children because everyone's pushing STEM, 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 but um, having that background in psychology or connecting with other human beings um, is, is what can motivate companies to grow or to innovate. And so we've been pushed in the, um, at universities when teaching English to, to give them the return on investment and say, here's what you can do with an English degree or taking a class on Shakespeare. And so now I'm armed with things like you'll be a better CEO and you'll be a better husband and you'll be a better uh, worker if you have a little yes, bit of uh, perspective. Hey everyone, my name is Maria Hinojosa and I am a TakeOver podcast host for the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast. I have a chance to interview someone who's really interesting. His name is Roberto Villaseñor. He is the former police chief of uh, police in Tucson, Tucson Arizona. Arizona. Mm-hmm. And um, you don't often have a lot of former law enforcement uh, sources, well, former law enforcement people Mm-hmm. Kind of coming in and doing a lot of intellectual give and take with an audience that might be perceived to be, <laughs> you're uh, laughing. <laughs> well, it, like I said at this morning's panel, I felt very lonely up there on the, on the dais. Well, you have been the only law and, enforcement, uh, former law enforcement correct. panelist around. Um, so just to be clear, um, mm-hmm. you were telling me that you, you grew up in, in... I grew up in Tucson. Tucson. You never expected to be a police chief. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I grew up in a family that my mother's side were ranchers, my father were shoe repairmen. I started off in a shoe repair shop, and my brother, my older brother, became a police officer. And I felt that it sounded so interesting in listening to what he did and, and talking and working with people. And then the, the camaraderie of working with other people, it kind of came from a sports background. And so it caught my interest, and I started, but I never thought it would end up where it ended up. All right, so a a police chief um, in a state like Arizona, Mm -hmm. like you and I have already had lots of conversations about this, but you have a state that, um, you know, 
six years ago basically says we have a real problem with undocumented immigrants actually the only term that was used i guess in the state was illegal aliens um you know what's it like to be a latino police chief in a city like tucson that's actually very progressive mm -hmm. um, much more liberal than the rest of the state um, and you're seeing what's happening to your state with these laws that are coming down against a community that you have to police mm -hmm. and that now is going to look at you and be like, me quedo lejos de ustedes, yeah. no hablo con ustedes, I, yep. I, I don't even want to speak to you if I'm an undocumented immigrant. And, and that was part of the problem. And, but I do want to start off saying, you know, living in Arizona all my life, I do recognize there's this topic is so varied and, and so vast and to try and simplify it the way so many people do is just really unrealistic i mean there's been times before where you know my family came across my grandfather and, and i i saw the side where he came across and signed in and it was a different way of entering the country back then but there's always been that back and forth between the southwest border states and mexico but also i also recognize the stress that undocumented immigrants and um, it, and the fact of illegal immigration puts upon the state. So I was put in a very difficult situation, but what I recognized, because this all happened when I was um, chief, was the fact that this really established a class of people who were basically professional victims because they would not come and talk to us, they would not report crime to us, and therefore people felt, you know, criminal types felt, well, this is an easy prey. I can do what I want, and the chances are they won't call the cops. That's a, wow, a professional victim. That, Pretty much. That must be hard as a, as a law enforcement officer to say that. So, so Roberto, um, what has it been like to be here at the Aspen Ideas Festival? It's your first time. It's my mm -hmm. first time. Uh, we're two new Latinos <laughs> at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, what's, what's it kind of, you've been on stage with DeRay McKesson, who is sure. you know one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter. Um, what's it been like for you well, to be I, here? I've gotten a, a few comments, feedback, and, and people say, well, I didn't realize that. And that's probably the biggest compliment I can get. Because right now, I think that what bothers me, there's just been one brush being used across about police. And I think we need to talk about the complexity of the issue. We need to talk about all the good things that police does do. And then we have to acknowledge it on the police side the stress that's in the community, the angst that the community has with some of our actions. And we can't take the standpoint or viewpoint just saying that, well, we have to act that way because there's other ways to accomplish the same thing. In fact, one of the things that you talked about and that you talk about a lot is, um, do you use the term de-escalation? That oh, that's, that's a big word right now in law enforcement. De-escalation, right? Which is basically saying to police officers, Force should be the last resort that you use. Kind of like stand down? No, it's not, not stand no. down. It's use a different tactic. Okay. Don't use force. Use use your words. Use the different things that we teach about presence, the things about compassion maybe, um, understanding the problem. There's going to be situations when force is used just because we deal with people sometimes that mentally are in unstable, emotionally are unstable could be you know narcotics alcohol whatever they're not thinking right and force is really there's no other option but force when that happens it's ugly and unfortunately with the proliferation of you know phones and cameras out there it's going to be caught and we're going to be talking about that a lot because people send that in news media show that and we're back off to the races again but the far majority of the time officers talk their way out of using force but people don't recognize that. We need to treat, 
teach that more and we need to trumpet that more to the public saying this is what we do. So um, the Republican National Convention is coming up soon. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that there are going to be lots and lots and lots of Americans and people who live in this country who are going to go and protest. I'm sure it's going to be very volatile there. So um, I'm going to be there covering this issue. But, you know, I, I, there's a part of me that feels this real unease about the fact that I'm going to be in a place that should be about celebrating the First Amendment, about celebrating what our democracy is all about, which is the gathering of people. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I've got this very discomforted feeling about what's going to happen. What's going to happen because I'm hearing, right, the, the word is I'm hearing, you know, how the Cleveland police are getting ready mm -hmm. for the protesters and the kinds of things that they're getting. So am I wrong to mm. be concerned? And if you were heading up the Cleveland police, what would you be saying to them? I think that they're in a, in a rock and a hard police position because if they weren't getting ready, making preparations, and something were to happen, then they would be castigated in that regard, and rightfully so. They have to prepare themselves. What my hope is is they're also, and I'm sure they are, talking about interacting with the community, going out there and, and being a friendly presence as well as a presence that can be there if the need comes forward. Okay. So what's, what's your, your message for us as we wrap up here um, on our Aspen Ideas to Go about the big idea that we need to be thinking about in relation to kind of the police communities of color narrative, um, you know, making these communities get along? Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to have to be a choice on both sides because while everyone's talking about police reform, police reform, there was an interesting comment in one of our panels this morning. What are our roles as citizens? What do we have to do to make sure that this equation is successful? There has to be give and take on both sides. They can't all win on the thing. They're going to have to be a little bit uncomfortable with the end result because that means they've given up something and they've gotten something. And I think that's the, the path to success. Okay. Thank you, Roberto Villasenor. Um, I'm glad Thank to you for see having you me here, here at uh, Aspen Ideas. Hopefully we'll be able to come back. Yes, it's fun here. It's kind of gorgeous here. It's, it's absolutely it is, gorgeous. It is in the state of Colorado. Yes, I know, but I'm not going to use. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I wasn't saying that. I was talking about in Spanish the fact that it's Oh, Colorado, the red state. That it's just the state, you know, this, this used to be Mexico. Well, I was talking about what we had oh, talked earlier, that it's legalized marijuana here. And remember that brought up a, a, a reaction when I said, well, we're not arrested for small amounts of marijuana. And a lot of people believe we are. And I don't think that that's the right message that's out there. That's a whole other conversation about whether or not it's happening or not. And we'll have to have that the next time we meet. Yes. They need to broadcast. ask us back. All right. We okay. hope so. Thank ask you. us back. <laughs> um, it's been great being here with you. My name is Maria Hinojosa, and I've been speaking with Roberto Villasenor. He's the former police chief of the city of Tucson, Arizona. That's our podcast takeover host and Aspen Ideas Festival presenter, Maria Inahosa. You heard her discussions with other festival presenters on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Watch for other episodes this week that feature more festival presenters taking over the podcast. Podcaster Franklin Leonard, journalist Perry Peltz and Emily Yaffe, and comedian and radio host Pete Dominic are interviewing festival presenters and experts in a variety of topics. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. 
Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and myself, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>